Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Conversation in Veterinary Pathology, the ACVP podcast, brought to you by the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the veterinary pathology community together to bolster our connections and spread knowledge. This segment aims to highlight those in our field at all stages of their careers, from all backgrounds and subspecialties. We will be talking to everyone from veterinary students to the pillars of the profession, hearing more about unique stories and how pathologists are not always just at the scope. Veterinary pathologists are out there changing the world. I'm Hannah Atkins, and this is Carolyn Labriola. Welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Laura White. Dr. White is an associate professor and residency coordinator at the Washington State University and the Washington Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory. She's an anatomic veterinary pathologist who's enthusiastic about her two primary roles, providing high-quality diagnostic services with practical implications and teaching the next generation of veterinarians and veterinary pathologists. So let's get to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I would like to jump right in. What is the structure of your institution's program? So traditionally, um, in the past, we've been a combined uh, PhD residency. And moving forward, um, we are essentially uncombining it. <laughs> we have a really good history, but we wanted to change it for a few reasons. One um, being that the requirements for both aspects of that are just sort of exponentially growing, that I think it's getting harder and harder to do both pieces at the same time and do them both well. And we want, obviously, to strive for excellence. And at the same time, um, keeping in mind that quality of life is important. And I think there's been, for good reason, increased awareness of that. And we want to make sure that our residents and our PhD students are able to have the quality of life that they want. So we are moving towards, um, it's going to be a combined master's program and residency. It's really going to look like a traditional three-year residency, um, where the master's is just sort of how they get to that title within the university. Uh, the requirements that they have to fulfill are still really going to be mainly pathology-based. Um, the one sort of outside course that they're going to have to take um, is statistics, but otherwise all the coursework is going to be focused on pathology um, and is going to accumulate in a, a master's project. It's non-thesis, um, but it's just a pathology-based project, hopefully resulting in a publication from the residents as well. Um, and we do still want to support this relationship that we've had with our researchers because we have a really great relationship and want to encourage students who do want to go through after residency and do a PhD or other advanced training um, to have them uh, still be available to do that and still encourage them to do that. On top of the statistics course, mm -hmm. will any of that pathology residency training be didactic? 
that's a great question. We are also, um, right now, we have one sort of didactic course. Um, it's uh, more of a case-based course, um, but it is a course that meets once a week um, that's outside of their just regular case-based training. And then we're also going to be adding on a course um, that's Intro to Histopathology. Um, and it's basically going to be, for our first-year residents, coming in really basic tissue changes to really make sure everyone has a solid base and are on the same place when they're starting out. How long do you expect those courses to take? Are they going to be a semester, a year long? Um, the intro to histopathology is going to be um, first semester when they come in, just one semester. And then um, the other course, uh, we call it advanced diagnostic pathology. Um, they do every semester that we're here, and we basically go through and do one or two organ systems or specific species um, per semester. So with the goal that by the time they're done in three years and gonna sit boards, they've covered each one of the major organ systems. And we have um, a different faculty member lead each one of the semesters. Um, so that takes advantage both of different people's expertise, but also of different learning styles. Everyone sort of does it a little bit differently. Thank you for listening and taking that mental health component into consideration. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that will be a, a great component of your residency going forward. Yeah, thanks. I really, I really hope so. <laughs> How many residents do you generally accept into your program every year? Um, we accept usually two residents. Um, so right now, uh, because we're in a transition, um, and, and I should add on, we are not uh, quite yet approved as a master's program. Um, those things take a long time in academia, so we're working through the process. Uh, but right now, um, some of our residents are still PhD in the PhD program, and the earlier ones are transitioning into this master's program. Um, so we currently have 10 residents, which I think is great because they all have different support for each other. You know, everyone has people that they get along with, that sort of thing. Moving forward, though, we hope to keep two per year. So we'll probably have about six when we really get going in this new program. That provides a lot of information coming from many different pathologists on campus for each year and each trainee. Mm -hmm. Um, so the thing I like best about our program and what I think the strength is, is the people that we have. So we have a pretty big group. We have, I already mentioned, we have 10 residents. We also have 10 pathologists. So um, we have a lot of different perspectives, people coming from all different walks of life and different expertise, different experience levels. There's sort of something for everyone. Um, and despite everyone's differences, we still all show up and contribute and enjoy contributing. And our residency program is really central to what we do. Our faculty meetings are focused still, not on the faculty, but like on the residency program. Um, we all just really want to provide good diagnostic medicine and also really good training and support. And I, I think that we accomplished that pretty well. I think even when I was a new faculty coming in, even as a junior faculty, I really felt supported and like there's a community here. Are those 10 pathologists both anatomic and clinical? No, that's only our anatomic pathologists. Um, it's weird. Our clinical pathologists are actually in a different department than we are. Um, so uh, I think we still interact well with each other and we've been incorporating them a little bit more but really in the diagnostic lab it's 
10 pathologists. Um, and we also have, we have two boarded microbiologists and we have two microbiology residents who are in the same little area as our anatomic pathology residents. Um, so it also, that also brings a whole different perspective and a different wealth of knowledge that still we can really readily share with each other. Do you find that the residents of different specialties interact with each other? Yes, definitely. Um, I'd say probably a little less from the veterinary teaching hospital. They still do. They interact with their cases. And we do have some um, joint rounds. We have like oncology rounds and neurology rounds and that sort of thing. But I think especially anatomic path, clin path, and the micro residents interact quite a bit. Right at the end of the day. You know, all three of those disciplines can come together to hopefully get the best answer possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, mm -hmm. Do you find that at least this last year of applicants, having the history that you do, were still interested in pursuing a PhD? Yes. I think a large amount of them, a large number of them um, were interested. And um, I think it also sort of brings in that group of people who's on the cusp of, I'm not really sure. I know when I was applying, I wasn't sure what exactly what I wanted to do. So it also gives a little bit of flexibility. How might you foresee helping a trainee that comes in to do this master's program? How do you see helping them then transition to a PhD here if that is their desired path? Um, yeah, so um, if that's their desired path, I think, first of all, they're going to have an amount of time where they can really see what the options are. They can see different labs. Um, they can see how people are going through it. We have things that we call RIP seminars where essentially uh, graduate students are presenting some of their research, you know, once a week so they can really see what the options are. And um, we're going to want their work to really be pathology-centered. Um, so there may not be a lot of time to really work on a pro uh project specifically, even if they've identified a lab, but maybe there is. Maybe there's a place where they can incorporate some pathology into that person's lab, um, that sort of thing. If there's anything I've learned about talking to pathologists, it's that they are amazing people, and if they want to do something, they're going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you will <laughs> just continue to be amazed and surprised with your future trainees. Yes, I think I will. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about your case submissions? How does that work with your trainees? Do they come a certain percentage from the diagnostic lab versus perhaps the teaching hospital? What, is, what would you consider to be the layout for those cases? Yeah, so um, our residents at Washington State, uh, we're the diagnostic lab. So we see both cases from the veterinary teaching hospital, as well as from the rest of the state and surrounding states as well. They see whatever comes in on necropsy. Um, we do limit the number of biopsy cases that they come in because we generally have more cases than residents can handle. Um, and we think that's optimum for learning, uh, you know, but they will be able to see cases from all different species, essentially, um, and from a lot of different entities as well. So we get some of those cases that are, you know, just a hot internal medicine mess from the, <laughs> from the teaching hospital that have a million things wrong with them. Um, but we also might get an owner submission, um, you know, from a bee farmer or something like that. We also get a fair number of like wildlife submissions, um, 
those sorts of things. We also have a pretty active um, aqua service, uh, which I'm not a part of. You do not want me to be looking at your fish, but we have a couple of excellent fish pathologists that the residents do get some training there as well. Most of it is aquaculture, so farmed fish, um, and also from aquarium and that sort of thing. And they're not all fish. They're also like snails and uh, starfish and all sorts of things. At what point in your education did you first learn about veterinary pathology as a career? Um, it, it was not until I started vet school. So I uh, grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. I had only experienced like small animal, GP, small town, single um, exam room type of thing. So vet school opened my eyes in many ways. Um, but it was literally, um, I think it was second year... I took GenPath and I was like, that's amazing. Um, it is, you know, literally the like basis of medicine. This is how things go wrong. This is, you get to learn a little bit of everything and that's just great. And that's what I want to do. And shout out to Lyndon Craig um, and Kim Newkirk at Tennessee, which is where I went, who were both amazing um, instructors and amazing mentors that really let me see that it's a great profession and that I would be able to do it. So that was sort of my first exposure. And then I was able to work in the pathology department uh, during one of the summers, just like a supported position where I just got to show up on the necropsy floor every afternoon and sit in on biopsies. Um, and that really solidified it for me. I was also like the ultimate geek in vet school. Like I took cardiology and was like, I want to also be a cardiologist. And I took neurology and I also want to be a neurologist. So uh, I decided that I really did want to have some experience in practice. So I did uh, do an internship and then did a couple years in practice and always knew that I was going to go back um, and do a residency. So that's what I ended up doing. And so at what point along that journey having said how much you were mm -hmm. interested in different things, did you decide that a pathology residency was going to be it for you? Um, it, so I knew that when I went out into practice. Um, when I did practice, uh, I did an internship, and then I did emergency again, because in emergency, you get to see a little bit of everything, um, which was awesome. And I had told myself, I'm going to do an internship, and then I'm going to do three years um, in practice. And then I'm going to play it by ear. If I love it, maybe I'll stay. If not, I'm definitely going to go do pathology. Um, and I was in a job working overnights by myself, not real happy, and just decided, you know what? I did an internship in two years, and I'm going to go, go do a residency now. Um, and I'm really glad I did, uh, obviously. Um, but I'm also glad that I got that experience in practice. I think it is... Um, a good experience for anyone who's looking to go into pathology if you're not sure. Um, and there's a lot of things to be learned to be in practice before practicing pathology. Um, just sort of from understanding what the client's going through, what the RDVMs are going through, what sort of information we think is interesting versus what information they actually need to treat the patient because they're not always the same thing. <laughs> So that's the same, like we were saying before, if a pathologist puts their mind to something, they're going to make it happen. You said yeah. that you were going to do these years and you did them. While you were out in practice, knowing your goals, 
Do you feel like you looked at cases with a pathologist spin even before your formal training? Um, I definitely think I did. Um, I did uh, quite a bit of ClinPath because that's a lot more accessible when you're in practice. Obviously, you can't do your own biopsies, those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I definitely did. And I definitely utilized necropsies, um, even in practice, more than a lot of practitioners did. And learning that you can use a necropsy for a lot of different reasons. Um, really, whether it's like owner closure or figuring out um, a piece of a case that you didn't understand, or even just for um, your own learning of a case, you were restricted by finances or something like that. Doing those necropsies in clinic, did you use techniques that your mentors during vet school at Tennessee taught you, or did you learn some of your own techniques for the process of necropsying, perhaps in a less than ideal space? Um, that's a really great question. Um, and I, I wasn't really restricted, partly because I was working overnights, so I was the only one in the clinic and could use all of the space I wanted to, which I usually just used a dental table, so it, you know, cleaned and that sort of thing. Um, but definitely, I would say learning how to utilize a less academic necropsy, using it for those other things, um, you know, worrying less about making sure that I'm getting every single, you know, adrenal and this and that, um, and more just going towards the actual, what, what part of this is going to be the most diagnostically useful. Right, which you mentioned is something that now you've brought into your teaching, mm -hmm. knowing what's relevant for the different client bases or colleagues that you're working with. Yes, exactly, yeah. You've been talking about your experience in emergency practice, mm -hmm. uh, but the unspoken thing here is that you practiced at Alameda East, which yes. is a pretty famous veterinary clinic because of their stints on television shows, multiple, there's an S there, on Animal Planet. Yes. Even though you were there after, I believe, the very last special, which I think was 2007, um, do you feel like those experiences that the hospital had, had any influence on the culture there and how you were able to practice and use your pathology skills there? Um, that's a really great question. Um, I think, if nothing else, it made the hospital very popular and sort of forced it to be at the cutting edge of medicine um, a lot to... It sound a little cliched, I think, on that. We definitely got clients from all walks of life who came in sometimes just because they had heard of the uh, clinic through the TV. Um, and But there was also, I think, a little bit of a spotlight, you know, um, to, to always make sure that you were just at the top of the game for medicine and that sort of thing. Um, I don't think it um, affected anything sort of pathology wise there. Um, honestly, as an intern, I had far less time to be doing things like necropsies on the side, um, because we worked a lot. Um, I'd say I was probably doing that a lot more when I was, um, at a different clinic. That's still really interesting. And there must, like you said, have been a lot of cases that perhaps at other similarly sized clinics, you wouldn't necessarily see. Yes, 
Yes, absolutely. We saw also quite a bit um, of exotics um, because Kevin Fitzgerald was there, who's also done a ton um, of media type stuff um, talking about exotics um, and also absolutely hilarious. He's done a bunch of AVMA conventions and stuff because he also does comedy. <laughs> That's so much fun mm -hmm. and gave you a lot of experience that now perhaps do you find that you're previous work in exotics helps you with the wildlife cases that you get submitted to Waddle? Uh, probably not. I'd say exotics is not one of my strong points. Uh, we have a couple of really great uh, exotics pathologists here who I very much um, will defer to their opinions. Um, but it, it still, I think, gives the perspective more of um, where the submitters, where the clients are coming from and what sort of information they're looking for. We all have strengths and having the number of pathologists that you do here and sounds like you all work really well together just will make for better answers for everyone. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of just going back to the culture, um, I have never once hesitated to get a second opinion from another pathologist here because I just feel even if it's something really stupid, like I just feel supported and like it's a safe place to be able to do that. That requires a certain level of trust. Yes, absolutely. Too. Do you feel like your residents would echo that sentiment? I think they would. I really hope that they would. And I hope that they would tell me if they didn't. Along those lines, what part does the phrase, I don't know, have in your teaching? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> uh, I remember when I was a first year resident, um, a mentor to me was, you know, asking questions in front of the scope and I answered a question, a couple of them, and then got to a point where I couldn't even make something up and just said, I don't know. And he complimented me on that. He said, you, you said that that's a hard skill. Like you did a really good job just saying, I don't know. And at the time I was like, that's weird, but I'll take any compliment I can get. And by like the third time we had the same conversation, I was questioning whether it was still a compliment or not. Um, but I think it is a compliment because I think one, one of the reasons I like pathology is that there's always something more to know. There's so much to know. Um, and that's what makes it interesting. Um, and I never want to pretend like I have all of the answers. I hope I have some of them for teaching's sake. Um, but being able to say, I don't know, um, and let's both go look it up. We all get to learn something. Um, and that's sort of the whole point of the game that we're playing, right? Um, is to just be able to keep learning. And I also think personally, I want to be able to say that and feel comfortable saying that. But also as a mentor, I want to model that. Um, no matter where you are in your career, it is okay to say, I don't know. Um, and it's okay to say, I don't know, I'll go look it up. Um, and go look it up for yourself. Don't come back and, you know, tell me. Just go look it up for yourself um, and enjoy that process of learning. Yeah, that I don't know yet. Yes, yes, I right. like that. Mm -hmm. How might you work with a student or trainee that comes to you and might have trouble saying that? Um, that's a really great question. Um, and I think, first of all, like I said, is just modeling that that's okay. Um, and I think that is common, especially in like the newer residents who are just coming in and don't, um, you know, are nervous about being wrong. Um, and just 
repeatedly saying, it's okay to be wrong. We'd rather you try. And it's also important to provide a safe space in which someone can be wrong. Um, you know, so obviously no like ridicule or anything like that, but providing a supportive um, environment using those things that we're taught, like sandwiching, um, you know, any sort of criticisms between good things, because there's always good things that are there, um, and uh, encouraging growth, even if it isn't always in a straight line. That goes really hand in hand with the mental health aspect that you seem to be advocating for as residency coordinator. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we um, all, all of us, everyone in vet school really, um, are pretty much type A <laughs> personalities that sometimes have a really hard time with that. Um, and to just sort of trust the process, um, and all of us should learn together. Right. And you wouldn't need to do it. You wouldn't need to do the training if you already knew it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You've told us little hints about your teaching philosophy. Mm -hmm. When did you first realize that you wanted to be an educator? Um, I sort of took a process, to be honest. Um, I have always really enjoyed academia and just learned, just enjoyed the atmosphere. Um, maybe I've been super lucky to have really good mentors uh, myself, um, but just that there is this atmosphere of learning and it's not just about getting through a case it's about getting through a case and learning things and applying it to the next case and whatever it might be um so I always sort of had that in the back of my head and then um when I was practicing overnights by myself I felt really isolated um and that probably solidified it a little bit more um to always want to be in an environment where there's this collaborative effort and that I just didn't have anyone to share my learning or my knowledge or anything like that with that I really wanted. Um, and then even in residency, I wasn't, I knew I wanted to end up in academia and I didn't know what that looked like because I wasn't sold on doing a PhD either. Um, and I was prepared to accept that I wasn't going to because um, I didn't want to do a PhD and that's a really hard thing to do if you don't want to, obviously. Um, and it just ended up working out uh, that that's where I ended up. Uh, so again, I guess pathologists just make it happen <laughs> however they want to make it happen. Um, so I really enjoy that and now I enjoy um, just being able to share knowledge and uh residents, even vet students, keep you on your toes. Uh, you have got to be on the top of your game, I think. Um, and I like having the motivation to do that. Right. And especially during the last few years with COVID, mm -hmm. you know, you really have to adapt and like you said, be on your feet. Yes, absolutely. Can you describe a challenge that you overcame in getting to where you are now in your career? Sure. Um, so uh, I think I already sort of mentioned um, pathologists and vet students and in general, having their type A personality and having a plan and thinking that life needs to look exactly like that plan, um, which I definitely felt a bit of. So um, when I was in my residency, um, it was towards the end um, of my residency when I was starting to study for boards, 
think about what I was doing after I was finished, that sort of thing. Um, I had some family issues that came up um, and I ultimately decided it was just too much and I couldn't put in what I needed to to study for boards. Um, and I ended up not taking them when I finished my residency, when I was quote unquote supposed to take them. And at the time that felt like the world crashing down on me. It wasn't what the plan was supposed to be. I was supposed to finish and take boards and pass them and go on and, you know, be a pathologist. Um, so while I was dealing with the stress of my family situation, I was also dealing with having felt like my self-worth was really affected by that. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. I was letting my residency down, letting me down, etc. And that took a really big blow to myself and my mental health. And, you know, I spent several months really going, what am I doing? I have ruined my life. <laughs> um, which, in retrospect, sounds very dramatic, but it's what it was um, at the time. And, uh, you know, again, looking back on it, uh, it is really, had that not happened, um, I wouldn't be looking for board study positions or, you know, clinical instructor positions. Um, and that's how I ended up out here at Washington, uh, which I had never expected to <laughs> end up across the country at that point. And that's what allowed me to get my foot in the door um, as a clinical instructor so that after I passed boards, I was then able um, to stay on as faculty because I'd already gotten my foot in the door. So, I mean, I think in the end, my path looked different than I thought it was going to, but it got me to the place that I ultimately really wanted to be, and that's what ended up being important. So I think, it, you know, going off that, my advice to be to students and residents, and I see this, um, I'm also on the student progress committee for the vet school, so I see students who also aren't doing great in courses, and oftentimes it's because they've had some life event, and residents, and especially if you're doing like a residency and a PhD, like vet school, that stuff takes time, and life is gonna happen. Whether it's personal, family, you know, whatever it happens to be, there's gonna be a hiccup in there somewhere. And I hate the cliche, like, it's all going to work out the way it's supposed to, but it is going to work out. The plan might look different, but you can still get to the goal that you wanted, or you can change the goal that you wanted based on what you've learned off that experience. So go with it. Um, and uh, it's okay to have hiccups. It's okay to not always put your career first. And it's okay to put yourself first sometimes. Uh, and from a really practical standpoint, because now that people are starting to apply for residencies, <laughs> I'm getting a lot of questions about this. Whatever it is, you've learned something from it. Whether you took a year off, whether you took a year off and did you know, practice, whether you're in vet school and you had one bad semester, whatever it happens to be, you learned from it, you grew from it, just highlight that. Don't highlight the problem, but highlight that you got something out of it. You did get something out of it. You might just have to figure out what it is. And I'm sure with a mentor like you <laughs> there to advocate, you really will help people get through that. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for putting yourself first because that really allowed you to be the mentor that you are today. Thanks. Yeah, and thank you for sharing your story. Mm -hmm. I know that that sort of thing is not easy to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of us have similar stories, whether it's 
something we're comfortable talking about or able to or even recognize. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What was your experience in dealing with your residency mentors as you chose not to sit that exam? Um, I think my residency mentors uh, handled it very well and did give me both support as well as the space that I needed. Um, so I really was, uh, I was lucky in the sense that I had finished all the diagnostic work that I needed to do. Um, so I was really just the couple months that we were given off to study for boards. Um, and I even moved away from where I was um, and was offered um, what remote support there was at that time, which like we didn't Zoom or any of that, <laughs> um, but still just like access um, to uh, what what I needed. And I came back into town um, and uh, asked to get coffee um, with my residency director and sat down and we were just sort of having this conversation, um, you know, and I said, I don't, I don't think that I'm going to take boards this year. And he just looked at me and was like, oh, is that why we're meeting? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, okay, that's fine. No, everyone, like you have to, you have to take it when you need to take it. There's an incredible amount of studying um, and learning that is, isn't covered in any, right, any residency program can't cover everything that's on boards. So there's a lot of independent um, studying in there. And he just said, like, yeah, you have to take your journey and take it when you're ready to do that. Um, and I really, I felt like that was just a weight lifted off my chest. Um, and I really appreciated that. And I should probably say that was Keith Linder, who I called last week for a second opinion. <laughs> um, I talked to him for a while on the phone. Uh, and he's no longer the residency coordinator uh, at North Carolina, but was awesome. How did you feel that you were received and then supported once you began here at Washington? I just felt like I was received very well and very supported from um, the beginning. You know, the first faculty meeting that I or pathologist meeting that I went to, obviously I was very nervous. I was the clinical instructor. I wasn't boarded, you know, that sort of thing. And it was my knowledge was never questioned. My ability to um, handle a case was never questioned. Um, yet, if I asked for support, um, you know, I was given that support that I was needed. So, um, and I think that that has been a, a common theme among junior faculty. We've had um, a bunch of new people uh, lately that uh, I hope I'm able to help them feel the, the same way. Um, that if we want to change something, if we want to, um, you know, even just change the way we schedule the residents or something like that, everyone is, it's a discussion and um, everyone is listened to. What are some other ways that you might support your incoming junior faculty? Um, that's a great question. Um, it's, uh, I think the biggest thing is to try to give them support in what they want to do with the position. Um, we sort of have a wide range of positions in terms of everyone has a different percentage of teaching versus diagnostic service. Um, we're, we've all transitioned to being pretty low research but everyone, no one is the same. Everyone is just a little bit different. Um, so it really 
it's good in the sense that you get to figure out what you want to do um, and then go do that. And a lot of times it's just moral support of doing that. And sometimes um, I think the best support that uh, we can give junior faculty is giving them, I guess, the practical information that they need. Just like, who do I contact in this department to do this? Or how do I work around this infrastructure? Um, weird academic, you know, everyone, every institution has their little things that you have to get around um, to do it. Or even how do I present this on, you know, my annual review to make it look like I did something because <laughs> they usually worked pretty hard on it. Um, those sorts of things. Um, and I guess I'm, I still feel a little like I'm junior faculty, even though I guess I technically am not. Um, so I'm still feeling that part out. <laughs> That's a great thing to recognize. <laughs> yeah. What advice might you give them on how to teach practically like in a room with a PowerPoint up on the screen, talking to a room full of first or second or fourth year students? Um, first of all, be yourself. Um, and uh, this is something that um, I think I did learn from the early mentors that I had, like Lyndon Craig and Kim Newkirk, um, is that most pathologists are a little bit quirky in one way or another, and just be that person and let the students see that you enjoy what you're doing. Someone once told me when I first started teaching, like, don't try to be the stern old man that you picture being the professor. And in my head, I was like, I've never pictured being the old man, right? <laughs> but I also had a bunch of really good women mentors that um, my humor is not someone else's humor, is not someone else's humor. And students can tell when you're faking it. Uh, so just if you enjoy it, if you have passion for it, show that, uh, however um, it comes out from you, and they'll be able to see that. And whether they really like the information or not, they'll still be able to see some of the enthusiasm and joy in it. So you teach the systemic pathology course to second-year students. Mm -hmm. How do you foster or recognize those students who have that extra bit of interest and might want to go on to have a career in pathology? Um, I think they have a hard time hiding it, first of all, <laughs> the, most of them at least. Um, I think they are usually the students that come, they don't necessarily, you know, raise their hands in class. Some might, um, but some people that is a lot of pressure and I get that. Um, but they're usually the ones that will hang out a little bit after class, um, and want to come down and chat about something or send an extra email. Um, and you can really, you can tell when people are asking questions just like sort of for the sake of it and when they're really thinking about it deeper and they tend to be the people who are thinking about it deeper. In your experience, about how many students per year do you see go on to apply for pathology residencies? I would say probably like one or two per year. Both of our first-year residents this year were WSU students, which I'm super proud of because <laughs> I haven't been teaching second-year uh, students for that long. Um, but my goal is to always make that higher. Absolutely. We have a wonderful profession. <laughs> Everyone should want to do it. I don't right? understand why people wouldn't. <laughs> 
speaking about your personality and mm-hmm. your own sense of humor, what little pathology thing excites you? Um, I don't know why, but I love pancreatic piscinian corpuscles. They are beautiful. They look cool. Um, why the heck they're there, I don't know. <laughs> but every time I see them, I point them out to the residents. Um, and uh, I was at a concert this past weekend, and it had a lot of bass. And, you know, every time you hear, like, really deep bass and you can, like, feel it vibrating in your abdomen, I always – I don't know if this is true or not, but I always think, oh, those are my Piscinian corpuscles in my pancreas. <laughs> they're rocking out. Yeah, they're feeling the vibrations because that's what Piscinian corpuscles do. I have no <laughs> idea if that – translates or not but that's what I think about every time I love that <laughs> that's such a great interesting factoid about you <laughs> I admire people who go out of their way to learn to be an educator are dedicated to being an educator and follow that up by taking feedback from what they're seeing in the residents from their own life experiences and apply that and it really seems like that's something that you have taken into your core and share Thank you. I really, I try. I hope that um, I accomplish half of what my aspirations are. (laughs) Even if you do have, I'm sure that it will be wonderful and just bolster our community. Thanks. Well, Dr. Laura White, thank you so much for talking with us. And again, just endless admiration for all that you do. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to A Conversation in Veterinary Pathology, the ACVP podcast, the official podcast of the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. A huge thank you to our guest, Dr. Laura White. If you like this episode of the podcast, you can find more episodes anywhere you get your podcasts, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Podchaser. Follow us, rate us, and comment on who we should interview next. Time to get ready for the ACVP and ASVCP annual meeting. We hope to see you this year in Chicago, Illinois, October 28th through 31st, 2023. The ACVP podcast will be hosting several special podcasting events, so we're super excited to meet you in person and have a conversation. Early bird registration may be over, but there's still plenty of time to register at the ACVP website at www.acvp.org. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to our next conversation.